Hey everybody, it's another installment of Brain Milk. I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. And today we're going to talk a little bit about some economic matters. Um, right off the bat, there's an article here we're looking at that 1,500 steel workers just got laid off two days after Trump said publicly, quote, U.S. steel mills are doing great. <laughs> are they doing great? Well, clearly not. <laughs> So it's unfortunate for these workers, of course, uh, you know, 1,500 steelworkers, that's a lot of people, uh, especially, you know, in an industry that Trump specifically said during the uh, debates and campaign and early presidency that he was going to protect, he was going to bring these jobs back, and, uh, you know, clearly it's not happened. Yeah, it's ironic that he puts a tariff on foreign steel companies so that, you know, it, li it literally costs more for companies to have steel from other places, but then it's not really picking up. Um, you know, kind of profits in steel companies here domestically. Well, yeah. yeah, what does it say about the steel industry that, you know, even with a tariff on foreign steel, American companies are still willing to pay that tariff for higher, you know, more expensive steel than by American steel. Right. And it's an interesting concept of, you know, free trade because Republicans have spent um, literally decades pushing free trade on, you know, not only within America, but the entire world and really kind of pressuring a lot of developing countries to adopt our free trade policies, even though um, America really, you know, America and Britain really got ahead in the industrial age by having all kinds of tariffs and like well, the complete America opposite too, yeah. of free trade. And that's how we got ahead because we basically mm -hmm. nurtured our own domestic industries yeah. at the expense of, you know, free trade policies that would allow a, uh, you know, very open trading system with, uh, you know, countries around the world. Well, it makes you really kind of worry too. So if this is what happened. This is what happening with tariffs. What's going to happen when, you know, this Trump, you know, trade deal with China goes through and we, we either decrease or remove some of these tariffs. If, if American companies can't compete with tariffs in place, what's going to happen when, you know, they're reversed right. or they, they go away? Uh, it'll probably be even worse. Yeah. Now, a lot of people will argue that tariffs are good for America, especially on things like steel and various metals, as a kind of uh, issue of national security. Do you agree with that uh, that concept? No, I think, uh, I mean, there is a lot to that idea, depending on what country you're buying steel from. But in America's case, you know, they were putting tariffs on Australia and Canada, you know, two countries that are, you know, very closely allied with us. Culturally, they're very similar. And, right. you know, they've even fought with America in pretty much every war we've been in for the last 70 years. So if you think about it, like what, how is that national security? You know what right. I mean? Buying steel from one of our, our closest right. allies. And I, I surely can't imagine us ever being adversaries with Australia or Canada. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and you, yeah. you, you'd really have to second guess the kind of policies or foreign policy work of politicians who would engineer a future in which Canada and Australia are our enemies. <laughs> yeah. you, you'd really yeah. have to kind of doubt the uh, the sensibility of that. Well, it's stupid, too, because, like, the national security idea is stupid uh, because Canada is literally a part of, you know, our military in some ways. Like, NORAD is a joint Canadian American, you know, military institution that, you know, protects our skies, protects us from intercontinental ballistic missiles, there's radar sites, right, you know, everything in Alaska, you know, the Northwest uh, is tied into like Canada's defense as well. Right. And, and so like, if like, I don't know, Calling them an adversary or potential adversary is right. just ludicrous. And, I mean, you know, our, our societies are so intertwined, both in terms of, you know, economics, but also mm -hmm. just cultural. 
um, you know, like the amount of Canadian um, musicians, actors, you mm-hmm. know, business people, everything's so interrelated. And actually, most of the Canadian population is like way close to the U.S. border. So it's not yeah. even re- I mean, true. really, Canada is like, you, you know, it's not really that foreign. I mean, there's just really no reason to needlessly antagonize. <laughs> The Canadian government, you know. Well, yeah, and even Australia. So right now, the Marine Corps just put a uh, a new military base uh, and Marine Corps training ground in Australia. Uh, you know, U.S. Navy ships visit there all the time. Like, these, this is not like a country we should really be, you know, threatening economically. Right. Um, mm-hmm. just for, you know, our own cheap political right. gain here for our politicians. Like the fact that Trump's doing this is just, is just crazy, beyond crazy. Yeah. The tariffs against our uh, allies is yeah. a little bit nuts. Um, let's also talk about the, um, the tariffs and the trade war involving, uh, agricultural interests in America. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> last, you know, haven't checked the scoreboard in a few days, but farmers are not doing great because of these tariffs. Mm-hmm. China really has no pressure to back down to Trump and, uh, j- you know, just start flooding, uh, their own market with our agricultural goods that they used to buy, but not anymore since the tariffs and the trade war got started. Well, the longer um, this goes, the worse it's going to be for right. American farmers. So right now we have a weird situation where the Trump administration has been using uh, basically funds to you know bail out the farmers and keep them going. They're pretty much paying them to try to compensate them for some of the lost uh, right. money that China's not buying. And considering how socialistic that is oh, as an economic yeah. concept, <laughs> I mean, it really amounts to just political bribery of yeah. a constituency that you don't want to piss off ahead of your next election. Yeah. Well, and then uh, even looking into the future, uh, kind of the same thing with uh, you know Canada and Australia. It's what's going to happen to these consumers when the tariffs end. You know, China now for two years has been looking for farm products from other countries, including and, Russia, notably. including Russia. Yeah. And uh, and most people probably don't know this, but uh, American farmers make a massive amount of uh, soybeans and rice that they you know used to send to China. But, you know, a lot of that's kind of stopped with these tariffs. So what's going to happen to these soybean and, you know, rice farmers when the tariffs end? Will China even want to buy their farm products anymore? You know, they're right. shooting themselves in the foot with this stupid trade war. Right. And plus, it's stupid because we're antagonizing the country that, you know, just in terms of population and economic potential is going to be the biggest adversary to uh, America throughout the rest of the century and, you know, the foreseeable future. So, uh, you know, from a uh, from a trade war standpoint, doesn't it make sense to just keep, you know, building these trade ties with China to the point where like an actual physical hot war is just impossible and ludicrous because our economies are so intertwined? Isn't that ultimately good for both China and America? Well, what you think about that, too, in the same kind of kind of thought is, uh, you know, if China is relying on American farmers for a lot of their food, that's a you know national security issue for China that America's kind of got them and got a little bit of leverage on them. And we've just completely lost that. So if China's, you know, uh, you know, food production comes from other countries and not America anymore, we've lost that little bit of leverage that, you know, at least helps incentivize them to keep working with us in other ways. And that is really an area that we could exploit, like heading into the future, because China's population is just so massive. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like China's needing less and less food every year. They're needing more and more food, right? 
Well, yeah, and uh, plus, I mean, even in a, you know, you'd think Trump would take the, the selfish American side, which we want our farmers to be making money off other countries. Yeah, we don't he's, want... He's always yeah. worried about trade imbalances. Isn't that yeah. a great way to make the trade oh, imbalance yeah. better for America? They're spending totally. their money on our agricultural surpluses? Yeah, because that's something America... America does not import a lot of food. We export our food all around the world, so there's no reason to, you know just throw that away for, you know, a stupid trial. Right. And it's, and it's, it's really interesting because, uh, let's talk about the TPP for a moment because, mm-hmm. um, it was a giant trade deal that Obama engineered with a ton of countries, both North America and South America, as well as all the countries in Asia surrounding China. There was one country left out of TPP the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it was China. Yeah. So the idea that the TPP was good for China, I mean, just looking at a map of the countries involved, you can just see, like, conspicuously that that's not true. Well, yeah, and that's something for people listening who don't know a lot about this. It's uh, It was actually a great way to combat the uh, One Belt, One Road uh, initiative China's been doing with most of Asia and even getting into kind of uh, All the, the way Middle to East and yeah, Eastern Europe. So, uh, you know, they're trying to basically create a huge infrastructure throughout Asia that all, you know, kind of all roads lead to China type of thing to try to increase their trade uh, right. around Asia and then bring those countries yeah. closer to their orbit. So the TPP was actually a great way. It took all, like you said, all the countries around the Pacific, you know, from East Asia, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and then the entirety of Western, you know, uh, Americas, you know, sort of Canada, America, Peru, uh, Chile, Chile, yeah, all these countries. And, you know, who is a leader of this trade partnership? America. Right. This is a way to, for America to cement our status in the Pacific yeah. and bring all of our countries that we already have pretty good relationships with, like South Korea, Japan, <laughs> right. Thailand. And know? a lot of those countries don't like being under China's overwhelmingly, yeah. like, giant shadow. They want to be allied more with America economically. And it's weird because the TPP was actually getting all of these countries onto the uh, essentially like signing onto the rule playbook yeah America wants China yep. to follow uh, like rules that uh, we want China to follow so things like intellectual property uh, like you know uh, labor standards all of these things that are basically remaking the Asian kind of regional economy in the image of America's economic interest you know it's, it was literally getting them all to basically uh, be on our side against China in some of these trade disputes and kind of rivalries. Well, and the best part, too, is it didn't even have to keep China out. There were just stipulations that if China wanted to join, like you said, they would have to bend to the economic system we wanted that region of the world to have. And it really goes to show that, you know, these countries, because Trump is not doing the TPP, I mean, a lot of these small countries without a giant, you know, world power like America kind of propping them up a little bit and blowing wind in their sails, like they have no choice but to start just sucking up to China, right? Yeah. The alternative to an American-led trade deal is basically saying, all right, fine, we'll have to deal with China. Let's just start doing what they want because they're they're the big kid in the sandbox over here. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Another little thing that is probably kind of being overlooked by the uh, administration is just 
our participation in East Asia is going to be hurt if, you know, China basically allows all these countries to just like acquiesce their claims in the South China Sea, right? So the more dependent right. these countries are on China, the more likely they are to just give in on a lot of issues, whether that's human rights and especially uh, the South China Sea, which is a ridiculous claim that China has. Basically, if you don't know, China has basically pulled a map from like the 1940s or something. <laughs> and in that map, there's like nine dotted lines. So they call it like the nine dotted lines map. And it basically shows or implies that China owns the entirety of the South China Sea, which is actually, you know, mostly owned by like 12 other countries. So, you know, countries from Vietnam, Brunei, you know, the Philippines, all those countries in Southeast Asia have little bits of claim because international law basically says that a country has 12 miles of, you know, territorial waters. Then you have another 12 miles, 24 miles out of the contiguous zone where you own all the, the legal policing, blah, 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 blah. And then furthermore, and more importantly, there's the economic exclusion, exclusion zone, which goes 200 miles from your land. Right. So, you know, we, if you go by international law, that 200 miles uh, out from China touches a fraction of the South China Sea. Right. And all those other 12 or however many countries that have, you know, their economic zones basically are covered the entire right. South China Sea. So for China to claim that entire area, it would almost be like if America just claimed the entire Caribbean and told every country, you know, from yeah. Cuba, uh, <laughs> Venezuela, you know, they just said, screw Mexico, you know, screw you guys, this is ours. Right. And it's just, it just, yeah. yeah. And it's complicated because China is actually building islands everywhere. And military bases. Yeah, and mil yeah. yeah. So not only are they trying to superficially increase what is their territory and their, like, territorial waters, it's literally creating, like, a giant installation uh, military apparatus all around Asia that obviously, I mean, you, you would think the American president would be interested in limiting China's ability to extend its, you know, naval and uh, military power, like, all across, you know, the Asian region. Well, and that's why it's so important that we don't stop, you know, engaging with these countries uh, and, and why, like, you know, even if TPP is not a, a, a real thing, well, then, you know, maybe the Trump administration should still be kind of active in that area. Because right. if we and, you know, the U.S. Navy all the time does uh, freedom of navigation uh, cruises through the South China Sea just to prove to China, no, you don't own this. Because, uh, you know, what they'll do is they'll go right past the reefs and then say, you know, hey, you can't keep us out. This isn't your territorial waters down here. Um, and, you know, possession, a lot of times in international law is like nine tenths of the law, right? Right. So if, if no country is actively fighting China and China is still creating like, you know, uh, whether it's like missile batteries down there, anti-ship, you know, weapons right. on these fake islands that they're making. Air well, then it just basically cements the fact that it is China's. Right. And, you know, a lot of these countries down there want America to lead, be a leader in the area. And, you know, they can't do these freedom of navigation right. acts themselves. They want like an American, you know, guided destroyer or aircraft carrier to proudly sail through right, and yeah. just prove that, nope, yeah. China, you have to play by international yeah. rules. And it goes to show that Trump is an idiot when he's talking about how the world doesn't respect America yeah. and we need to like basically bully them to earn their respect and make them mm -hmm. afraid of us. But these countries, you know, they would much rather have American warships going around uh, keeping things kind of under control 
and stable rather than having China, you know, take over all of those uh, the, the kind of patrolling missions that we've been doing. They, I mean, all these Asian countries that are already under the shadow of China, they don't want, you know, just Chinese uh, warships uh, going up and down their coast, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just saying, hey, this is our sea now. And then, you know, <laughs> blocking them from uh, economically, uh, you know, using some of those resources. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because it just seems like, you know, uh, this is the worst possible moment, you know, as China is really trying to assert itself as a global superpower. It's like the worst moment for America to just pull back completely. And, you know, in terms of the damage Trump has done to the, the uh, State Department and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, relationships with all of these countries, because, you know, with that One Belt initiative, China is really investing tons of money throughout Africa and, uh, you know, the uh, Asian countries and all the way into Eastern Europe. Europe to have that One Belt initiative where they're building things like naval ports well, yeah, and that's airports part of their... and all kinds of infrastructure yeah. that basically, uh, I mean, a lot of these countries aren't even really that happy about it because basically China promises them a sweet deal and then, you know, these countries aren't making enough money to pay back the interest and then China basically starts well, owning intent. little pieces of their economy. Yeah. China is purposely, and their infrastructure. purposely making loans that they know some of these countries can't pay back. Right. So when they, when they build a port in like Djibouti or something and they say we'll loan it to you as long as we get to use it but then they yeah. can't make the payments well suddenly china's like well we'll we'll waive the the loan we gave you just give us this base right. we and then and it, suddenly yeah. they have that's what they call their string of pearls right. uh, kind of strategy where you know in like pakistan and a couple other middle eastern countries ending all the way in Djibouti and eastern africa they have a string of pearl military bases right and uh, that's you know real it, chinese yeah. power that they're trying to you know you know, surplant uh, the USA yeah. in those areas. And it's definitely ironic because, like we said, uh, the strings are attached, but also China literally sends Chinese workers to build this stuff. Mm-hmm. China is not even interested in letting, um, you know, like domestic companies or, you know, laborers actually build their own country's infrastructure mm-hmm. projects. China, I mean, China, it's... China's not really obscuring the fact that they don't really care about the the you know domestic interests of the countries they go into. It's really a uh, kind of China centric plan. Yeah, and this gets into the uh, much bigger foreign policy kind of idea of what America's been doing for the last seventy years. You know, we have military bases all around the world to respond and, more importantly, deter. Right? How right. many how many wars do you think in the last seventy years haven't happened because American forces? are, you know, for example, Korea, right? What would North Korea have done in the last 70 years if if America didn't have soldiers stationed on South Korea and Japan and Okinawa ready to react if, you know, North Korea were to do something? Right. That's a, you know, creates a tremendous amount of stability in that part of the world and the world in general, right? Because, I mean, uh, even looking in other parts of the world, like the Middle East, right. you know, we have a big base in Bahrain. We have soldiers stationed right. in multiple different countries there. You know, right now, Iran and Saudi Arabia are basically kind of, you know, in a, a cold war. But they're like, there's proxy wars in Yemen, you know. Right. Uh, the UAE is involved. Like, how much more would have happened if, you know, there weren't American, you know, units right. in the area deterring yeah. And it doesn't make sense for Trump to have this posture where he just wants to scale back everything America is doing around the world. Uh, because, you know, the Russia and China are not becoming any less of rivals for, you know, for, mm-hmm. throughout the foreseeable, uh, you know, the, the rest of the century. I mean, it's a good thing for American uh 
policy and American presence in Asia that we have so many troops and uh, military, uh, you know, Commitments functionality. Yeah, with uh, Japan and South Korea. Like, who's right there next to those bases is China. Well, even right? bringing it back to the terrorists, like Australia and Canada. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're our natural allies. Yeah. And, I mean, they support us generally with everything. I mean, they right. went to Iraq with us, which was a, a terrible war. Yeah. And, you know, completely fabricated yeah. on, you know, shit uh, intel. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, Australia right now is having a lot of scandals because... Because they're getting, you know, various Australian politicians are getting busted for basically taking Chinese bribes. And, uh, you know, China is not a totally innocent player here. (laughs) China, you know, definitely has... interest in Australian uh, politics and is I mean is that some is that is Australia a country that America wants to lose in you in know orbit kind yeah of lose yeah. from our orbit right and I think I think uh, you know t- taking a macro view you know Trump's whole idea of screw the rest of the world what is anybody doing for us um, you know with our military bases all over the world, yeah, um, some of it might be excessive and you can have the idea that, yeah, let's uh, maybe spend less money having troops everywhere. But I mean, from a if you really think America is the indispensable nation and that only we should be, you know, we should be the single police state and that's good for global stability, that there is one country, notably ours, yeah. the one that we live in, Donald Trump lives in, all of Trump's supporters live in. Why would you not want America to continue being that lone, basically um, un um, un um, opposed uh, police state? Well, yeah, yeah, hundred percent agree. And uh, just think of what it what it says about the world today that like you know you have countries like China, which look like the more rational actor, right? You know, and you know they're criticizing the United States and Trump specifically for these tariffs, mm-hmm. and like. They have a point. Like, America is creating instability needlessly right now. Yeah. Like, how many, even in our own, you know, the, the the stock market in America, how many times has the stock market plummeted a day or like two a days thousand or a week points a day? Directly because of something Trump said. Right. You know, whether he, he reneged on some kind of deal, uh, trade deal, or, you know, backtracked on any progress with China, like... A lot of the dips in the last, like, three years have been directly resulted from Trump himself. Which is, you know, crazy to think about. Yeah. And I mean, it, the fact that a tweet is literally sending the market down 400 right. points in a day. And Trump's also been caught making things up about, yeah. you know, alleging discussions with Chinese officials that give the market more confidence. And, uh, you know, presumably, you know, people he talks to about what he's going to say and publicly about the negotiations. You know, a lot of people yeah. are probably making money off of that boost in confidence and boost in stocks. And then, of course, it always comes out, you know, China will say something like, uh, actually, no, there haven't been high level talks where we're yeah. we're agreeing that we're very yeah. close to a deal like Trump just made that up and that you know like the whole idea of going against China in a trade war in the first place it just seems like bad politics because China is not a democracy America is a democracy and Trump literally has to basically bribe you know the yeah. farmer constituency to stay along with him China you know uh, you know the leaders of the um, 
um, Communist Party in China don't have elections where they have to um, deal with, you know, public dissatisfaction with the trade war. And short-term uh, setbacks. Yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, China is taking the long-term view. I mean, it's kind of prudent of them. But again, it's not a democracy, so they don't have to listen to the whims of an angry populace based off of short-term, uh, you know, declines and profits of the agricultural industry in China. Well, it's funny, too, because what does it say about Trump, right? If you might recall in 2016, Trump said trade wars are easy to win. Right. He said that over and over, easy to win. You might imagine if they were truly easy to win, it might not, you know, why is it three and a half years later almost? And the only things that they've been calling as accomplishments are basically that China will just start buying the same level of product that they were already buying prior to the trade war. Yeah. So we're losing all of this money and then spend we're like we're actually losing double the money because we're losing the money that the uh, the farmers are making yeah we're losing exports and then we're losing money to bribe the farmers (laughs) to pay them what they were losing so it's literally like a double loss for america and then meanwhile like we said china is just buying you know the soybeans that it needs from just other countries and as of today 1500 steel workers have been laid off right so what are these steel tariffs even doing why can't they just admit that it was a bad idea and, you know, why don't right. we work on something else? Now, do you think, I mean, uh, what, what do you think the reaction will be? Let, let's change gears a little bit to Europe. Because remember, Trump was is doing uh, tariffs against, like, French wines yeah. and various, like, country-specific, yeah. con- you know, uh, little products from different countries who, again, are our NATO and European Union allies and our mm-hmm. blood brothers over, like, you know, seven decades of, you know, fighting wars together and stuff. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, do you think uh, Europe will start fighting back? I mean, I remember ahead of the 2018, or right around 2018, uh, remember France and Germany were like putting tariffs on um, specific companies in Wisconsin. Like Harley Davidson. Yeah, right? to kind of push back at Paul yeah. Ryan and Mitch McConnell. Um, do you think that there might be more of that in the future? Well, yeah, I think there will definitely be a tit for tat, you know, economic policy right. kind of thing. Why would they not? Why would they just allow Trump to do yeah. that? I and think with the World the, Bank, they are literally like almost obligated to push back the same equal amount of tariffs that we put on them. You know, they're all well, within the, their rights to do the same. Yeah, that's the, the uh, that's us. the idea of reciprocity. Um, you know, according to the WTO rules, countries are really not supposed to put tariffs on each other at all because the idea of the entire institution is free trade. But if a country puts, you know, unilateral tariffs on you, you have every right. And, you know, you're even encouraged to uh, reciprocate and, and put tariffs on them because, you know, again, the goal of all these institutions that America helped make and make the rest of the world join for our own benefit. You know, that's the rules we made up. For other countries right. so that if they increase tariffs, we could increase tariffs. I don't think anyone over the last 75 years ever dreamed that America would be unilaterally just putting new tariffs on countries after we spent decades trying to get other countries to right. turn their uh, tariffs down or eliminate yeah. them completely. Including countries in the developing world who, again, stand to benefit by having tariffs against American products in order to bolster their own domestic industries, Yeah, which again is how the Industrial Revolution made 
made America and Britain the top economies of the world because we had tons of tariffs on all of our <laughs> on all of international yeah. goods to bolster our own economies. So it's just kind of ironic that while we're at the top of the economic food chain, we basically convince all the developing countries not to do what we did that got us so far yeah. ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and think of American farmers. Imagine every country decided we want to make our own food. We're, we, we rely too much on American farmers. We're going to make our own food and put massive tariffs right. on American agriculture. Our farmers, you know... They've lost a right. huge market. I mean, America is five percent of the world's population. Yeah. But if they can feed more than that, they can they can make way more money than right. just selling in America. But that's ironic too, because we have all kinds of subsidies on our domestic agricultural mm-hmm. goods. So it's ne- we don't even practice free trade with the uh, the raw food uh, producing countries. Yeah, the goods that you know theoretically these developing countries that don't have um, well established dynamic industries. The thing you know, according to uh, free trade, the thing they should be selling yeah. to America is the food that we intentionally don't buy from them. So it's kind of like a little bit of insult and injury all, you know, work together in our uh, our concept of free trade that benefits America over a lot of the developing world. Well, that's funny, too, even in domestic politics, right? The, they claim that, you know, American workers and farmers have it so bad. Well, American farmers get massive subsidies from the yeah. government. Like, they literally just get checks in the mail from the government for farming. Right. They even get paid to not farm on certain fields to protect, you know, the topsoil of the nation. As so, well as protect prices. Yeah, exactly. So that farmers don't go destitute <laughs> when, you know, yeah. crops are just flooding the market and uh, suddenly corn is, like, worthless because there's just so much of it. Yeah, so that's that funny, you know, people criticize liberals for, you know, not, you know, trying to, you know, undo, you know, true uh, free market supply and demand, but... You know, we basically created demand for our own domestic farmers, and right. so they make more money. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about the uh, coming NATO—not uh, the uh, NATO, but the uh, NAFTA, the new NAFTA trade deal that Trump is uh, claiming that he's working on and perfecting and making the best trade deal anyone's ever heard of ever? Well, I think it's kind of complicated, right? So there will be certain industries that do better in America because of the deal. But, you know, the deal isn't just a a big fuck you to the other countries. They got something out of it, too. So the real question is what industries are going to be hurt, right? right? They're going to be American. Anything that you do as a policy uh, kind of initiative, there's going to be winners and there's going to be be losers. losers. That's right. How how you pick who is a winner or a loser, there's a lot of room for debate. And, you know, the cause and effect of that, you know, certainly has consequences. But, uh, well, yeah, and that goes back to the, you know, the kind of classic economic idea that, like, of... uh, comparative advantage, right? So these trade deals are going to change the comparative advantage of America, the comparative advantage basically meaning that America is probably better at certain things than other things, right? So America is clearly better at service jobs. They're clearly better at high technology because we have a lot of capital in this country and we've got a lot of well-educated people, right? And a lot of research and development. A lot of research and development, right? So, I mean, there's a reason that high uh, or uh, low-skill uh, labor went overseas is because it's not going to be profitable in America. So it'll be interesting to see what these trade deals do. You know, at some point, whether it's like steel manufacturing, you know, coal production, um, you know, a lot of these industries that Trump says he's going to protect, well, more free trade, if it's already barely profitable in America, 
more free trade is probably going to hurt them more. And the idea economically is that America should just be trying to find ways to get these people out of those industries completely and into, you know, retrained or, or better educated and move them somewhere else where, you know, America's a, a, a clear comparative advantage. Right. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's something I think we're going to see in the future that certain industries are going to continue hurting no matter what Trump says, thinks or does. Right. And there, I mean, at a certain point with a uh, continually uh, modernizing economy, I mean, it's just there's just going to be industries that die out. I mean, yeah. there's no reason that we should have uh, American miners going deep into the ground. Yeah. yeah, coal miners like, you know, it's, you know, wasting their lives, increasing our health care costs and expenditures and, uh, you know, kind of ruining people's lives. There's no reason to continue doing that just to pander to miners as some kind of political faction when theoretically we should just be buying coal for cheap from another country that, uh, you know, it's not great for the other country, but, you know, if there's other countries that have less labor laws and less minimum wage and less yeah. protections, you know, again, I mean, you know, it's not great for us to be kind of, uh, you know, giving those companies in other countries, you know, profits when they have sub uh, sub level of, uh, you know, kind of workers rights and stuff. But again, if you're Trump and you have the mindset of screw the rest of the world, let's just do whatever is good for America. It's good for America to buy this stuff super cheap in other countries, you know, with, you know, uh, lower paid workers. It's better for the for uh, American consumers to get things at yeah. cheaper costs. Well, it makes you wonder, too, what's the end game? Right. So if if West Virginia is the most amount of coal miners and West Virginians are on average some of the poorest people in the country, why are you supporting this industry? Right. Right. Um, you know, are you going to yeah. eventually use, you know, socialism to just subsidize them to make them have a, you know, you know, whether it's food stamps or even more welfare to make them be able to live. Like, what's the point of that? Why don't we use federal money right. to try to teach them or bring in, you know, new jobs into those areas yeah. and make a have a better standard of right. living? They don't have to go in a coal mine anymore. Plus, they're in, you know, new professions that, you know, uh, aren't going to give them black law. <laughs> yeah. And aren't actively hurting the climate, the environment, right. you know, negatively yeah. impacting these, you know, small communities where people are dying young. Right. You know what I mean? So it begs the question, should we continue subsidizing, you know, the whole coal mining or promoting industry? it as like a beautiful, you know, traditional American right. job of a hardworking yeah. man, especially with the more uh, modern, the global economy becomes the only way coal mines in America stay competitive are to cut all of the human, all of the you know kind of OSHA laws and regulations yeah, human that protect coal miners, right? Yeah, because I mean you know every time you hear about uh, you know regulations being cut and like Republicans slashing all this red tape, you just start having more accidents in coal mines because they're just cutting all the corners that you know traditionally kept coal miners you know alive while while yeah. working. Yeah. So let's kind of uh, change gears a little bit and talk about automation. Um, you hear a lot of people's, uh, you know, a lot of people are right to fear that a lot of jobs are going to start being cut and lost because automation is taking over. But is that uh, inherently a bad thing or is it, a, you know, is it can it be a positive thing? Um, I would, you know, right off the bat a lot, you know, it's kind of like a new industrial revolution. And obviously the first industrial revolution, you know, cut millions of jobs around the world where you didn't have mm -hmm. to have all these seamstresses by hand, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sewing together everybody's clothes that everybody wore when you started having more mechanical operation uh, machines, you know, that were still human uh, kind of controlled. But, you know, suddenly you could make 
incredibly more clothes and all kinds of uh, textiles that had to be done by hand originally. And so, yeah, a lot of people lost their jobs and there was a lot of strife. But I mean, I mean, would you say let's go back to, you know, let's get rid of like the cotton gin and, uh, you know, all of these mechanical looms and go back to that glorious day where everybody had shit jobs, <laughs> you know, labored for hours and hours, you know, making everything by hand, you know, and just a well, much more, less inefficient system. But should we go back to it just because of more jobs? I mean, yeah, that's a good question. And it makes you really wonder about the end game of like the Trump administration, right? So he's always talking about truck drivers, right? And this is kind of like one of the big issues Andrew Yang's always talking about right. running for the Democratic nomination. But like you can you can love truck drivers, but at the end of the day, whether or not you think it's a great job, and a lot of them do make good money, you know, and it is a good profession, but like I you know, to some extent the inevitable is coming. They're yeah. already working on trucks that will at least drive on highways really safe. And, uh, you know, take uh, a truck basically from, you know, you know, Kansas or Missouri or something and drive it all the way across, you know, the really long highways of the, you know, the, the western states where there's not a lot going on the roads. And, you know, sure, a truck driver may get back into that truck into a big city to get it to the final destination. But you've basically eliminated a massive amount of the truck right. drivers needed and the amount of time they're actually working and driving. Yeah. Um, and that's something that Andrew Yang points out that, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, when so many jobs were lost, there was a ton of destruction and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people whose jobs were taken over by, you know, uh, you know, simple, but, you know, simple machines. Um, they, you know, were like burning down. Well, the their, Luddites, yeah, they would, yeah. they would rampage through the countryside. Right, destroy all the yeah. machines and stuff. Intimidating, yeah. like the business uh, right. managers and stuff. And granted, uh, you know, truck driving is the number one, is the, 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 the biggest profession in a lot of states you know there's mm -hmm. more people employed truck driving than any other job um, and certainly uh, I think if you just look at the demographics um, of kind of like middle-aged white men who weren't college educated yeah you know, that's, that's the average truck driver yeah right uh, but that's also probably the average you know demographic of people who are most likely to be disgruntled and maybe take up a gun or start causing destruction you know well that's why um, the why the end game and looking at future trends is so important because what do you got what are you going to do with these guys who can't retire yet and and if they're just otherwise will be destitute yeah, yeah. Um, but it, but it also you know it's an interesting question because uh, right now a lot of economists and kind of uh, social philosophers disagree whether or not automation is actually a uh, like a giant disruptive force because really? you know one school of thought is that the more jobs get automated the more new industries you create because of that so I mean right off the top of my head like let's say a bunch of truck drivers lose their jobs and are no longer driving trucks but now when uh, uh, you know they'll lose their job because because trucks that are automated don't need human drivers. They don't have to stop and have the driver sleep. So trucks can just be round the clock driving around the country delivering things. However, right off the top of my head, uh, you know, you might actually increase a ton of jobs of like basically uh, warehouse workers actually unloading all those trucks. Because imagine now if you have if all of the uh, if you get a good amount of those truck drivers who lose their jobs actually driving, maybe they get a job in a warehouse because trucks are going constantly. Maybe there's tons 
tons more truck deliveries every single day. So maybe they need, you know, more warehouse workers or, you know, or actually people in the trucks to start delivering the goods, you know, everywhere they go. That's just one idea off the top of my head. But I was wondering if you had any opinions or thoughts on whether it would be intrinsically good or maybe intrinsically bad that some of these might be converted. I kind of think differently. I think a lot of the new jobs that will be created are, you know, the coding and the programming and the, you know, designing uh, jobs in these companies trying to make better and better driver, you know, driverless truck programs. You know what I mean? Right. And that's the problem is where you don't necessarily have jobs being created that the people losing jobs can just sidestep into. It's one thing if a truck driver was to go work for a, you know, a dock loading employee or something, but you know, that job might pay a lot less and might have less benefits, you know, maybe there's not even a union, like there's some trucker unions, but you know, certainly a, you know, older, you know, truck driver is not going to be able to be on that forefront of those coders and programmers who are actually designing the, you know, whatever machine or robots right. driving the trucks, you know But what it's I mean? fascinating, too, because you look at the two parties and everyone says, oh, the parties are the same. But I mean, what are Republicans suggesting or what in their ideological beliefs suggest that they would be open to the idea of spending a ton of money to train mm-hmm. all of these truckers and, um, you know, like some of the other industries that are being affected by automation or even like lawyer staffs, you know, mm-hmm. because now we have like computer programs that can basically read and write Brief, you know, ba- entry level jobs that you know, like write briefs for lawyers. And well, stuff. it's even little things and administrative like staff, like all of the like call radiologists. Radiologists. Right, yeah. I mean, a oh, computer yeah. can right. look at thousands of healthy, uh, you know, body parts or, yeah, or scans, X-rays, and X-rays, MRI and, scans. Yeah. yeah, and and notice little differences. Yeah. And compartmentalize yeah. way more healthy images compared to unhealthy images than a human brain could remember. Yeah, like why would you trust a radiologist over a computer program that's seen literally tens of thousands of scans? Or every scan ever. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah exactly. The sky's the <laughs> limit with yeah. the, the data that you can put into it. Well, and, and the little sh- different shadings, it might even be able to pinpoint individual pixels or groups of pixels that a human eye couldn't right. and say there's your problem that is a real medical problem right there that a normal human would just never even see right um so so you think uh what do you I, think, well, I think will happen i think, think in a very negative way that a lot of the jobs being lost the, the, the jobs that are created like i do believe new jobs will be created and probably way more than some of the pessimists think there'll mm-hmm. be way more jobs that are created out of these new technologies than are lost i think however the people losing jobs aren't going to be able to go to them those jobs are going to be for the really high skilled very educated in a very right. small field and you know like imagine like a truck driver in his 50s like is he going to go back to to maybe back to school or to school for the first time for four years yeah you know, is he going to take on a huge yeah. amount of debt when he has no money to he'll learn be, computer yeah. coding he'll be four years right. closer to retirement he starts a yeah. new career maybe he's like 60 now what is he going to work for five years in a right. completely new field but then you also get the whole idea that employers don't really hire old people to do jobs you know when they mm-hmm. can get young people who are fresher and newer maybe more uh, you know kind of uh, you know aware of all the nuances of a changing culture well a lot um, of the big companies now are starting so you're not going to start up a company that you want to take for the long run with a bunch of like 60 year olds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're not in it for the long run, no matter how good they are. You know, right. even the economics of who you're hiring is going to hurt them. And that's why I think like we need to nip this, you know, in the butt sooner rather than later, because like at this point right now, anyone who's like, you know, let's say 30 years old, you shouldn't try to become a truck driver. Right. Yeah. Right. Like 
in the 1850s, it would have been a terrible career choice to become like a hand weaver of yeah, fabrics. A, a you know hand, what I mean? Hand, <laughs> yeah. Hand working seamstress. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but you know, then it, again, it comes back to that idea that Andrew Yang has of the uh, the universal basic income, and his whole idea is that you get all of these people, you know, that now get a thousand bucks, and now suddenly, if the, if they have a little bit of cushion, they're not gonna, you know, because one idea is that a lot of these truck drivers are just disgruntled workers, you know, they might start leaving their trucks in the middle of the highway to obstruct all these automated trucks, or they might, you know, they might well, start they like nothing. literally, yeah, yeah if they have nothing and they're just pissed off with the world they'll start obstructing the changes to their uh, to the economy uh that you know is directly impacting them in negative ways well that's why ubi is such an interesting idea too because imagine you're a married couple right and you know the, the the husband's a truck driver well if he quits his job to try to learn something else or move on to something else his right. he and his wife have at, at least the minimum 24 grand a year coming in from the ubi and if his wife's working you know who knows how much money but you know that is a huge cushion to make right. sure that you can quit your job and start something new and not have to worry about food or losing your house, having to move to a small apartment or something while you're trying to learn something else. Right. Like, talk about allowing people to not upend their entire life by a career change. Yeah. One that's inevitable, inevitably has to be made. You right. Know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, you know, definitely, you know, we've talked about this uh, before, but. Um, the, the whole economy of the people making the vast amounts of profits off of the digitalization uh, of this uh, new uh, industrial revolution that mm -hmm. we're in, you know, all, all of that money is going to such a small amount of people that are, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, let's say the, a truck company takes on like, you know, millions of automated driving trucks, and now you don't have this giant workforce to give money to. There's only a few people at the top of that company yeah. that think they are genius and deserve giant, you know, giant salaries and giant bonuses for basically kicking off all their real human workers yeah. and converting everything to uh, basically automated driving trucks. So the whole idea of the value added tax for all of that value added at the very top, you know, needs to be taxed in order to fund some of the displacement or the re-education uh, programs that, you know, various uh, politicians have recommended for, you know, training and uh, helping the people negatively impacted by this digitalization of every job. Well, that, the value-added tax, the VAT that, you know, Andrew Yang kind of talks about, and I think it's a genius idea because if, if the government is putting a certain tax on certain goods, you can just, like, basically make sure the highest taxes are paying for the most ridiculous purchases in the country, right? right? So, like, maybe you have food, have zero tax. You know, yeah. go to a grocery store, there's zero tax from the federal government. But, you know, suddenly you're buying a yacht, and maybe there's a VAT of 50%, right? Right, yeah. So, if you're buying a yeah. yacht with a yacht inside of it that kind of yeah. comes out all on its own, so you have literally, a, if you want to take up the smaller yacht... You have a boat in your yacht. <laughs> yeah. So if your one yacht is just not right for today, you want to take out the smaller, more sleeker yacht, obviously that should have a higher tax. Well, think you know, about it. If you have so much money that you can buy... Uh, like I went to Rhode Island one time and, you know, we did a little tour of the bay, Narragansett Bay, right? And it's interesting because they show you like 50, 60, $100 million yachts. I think uh, they showed a Sting, uh, Sting's uh, 
uh, I think it was Sting, but yeah, he, some famous musician has a hundred million dollar yacht sitting in Narragansett Bay of Rhode Island. Right. And like, imagine like if you're buying a hundred million dollar yacht, maybe you should be taxed like fifty million dollars <laughs> yeah, on that right. ludicrous expense. Yeah. You know, expensive uh, luxury good. Right. Or if you're buying, you know, eight thousand dollar bottles of wine, you know, why should you tax? You know, poor people buying like you know, I don't know, ramen noodles at seven percent, but only you know a thousand dollar bottle of wine at seven percent as well. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> yeah, so that that brings up the whole idea of like progressive taxation to help fix the uh, the kind of uh, negative consequences to uh, the economic inequality of our economy. Um, and you know, just in general, like Jeff Bezos, like like I was talking about how it's like the digitalization of the economy. Jeff Bezos. But, you know, has literally, you know, put out of business all of these bookstores and all of these mom and pop stores because you could just go online and buy something from Amazon. And Jeff Bezos is not personally involved in any of those economic transactions, but he's making all of this money off of that. And, you know, thou- you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people are losing jobs because he has, uh, you know, in, in many ways with the digitalization of Amazon, he's perfected the uh, the kind of economic scale and everything. So why was why does Jeff Bezos not have a massively higher tax rate yeah. for basically, you know, putting all of these people out of business by base, you know, Amazon, you know, loses money on their sales. Uber and Lyft, you know, are putting all these taxi companies out of business. They well, those lose are, money. Those are three companies that are just still running on investor capital. Right, like, yeah. yeah. Investor so, capital. I mean, like at some point you need to have a tax to reverse the damage from these companies that are intentionally losing you know, they're not economically sound. They're losing money on every sale that they do, but they're playing the long game where everyone else has been put out of business and now they can jack up rates when they're the only player left in the game. So, I mean, there has to be some tax related uh, consequence to that degree of market, uh, you know, turmoil. Well, another thing, if you don't think progressive taxation is necessarily fair that the rich are paying more, a higher percentage of their ta- their money in taxes, like here's an article that says Jeff Bezos, is paying $80 million for three adjacent New York City apartments. He's buying three apartments in New York City for $80 million. Should he be taxed at the same, you know, should he pay the same property tax as like a bunch of, you know, postgraduate kids in New York City, you know, who buy a house or an apartment or something? Or teachers that are like intentionally working in low income areas to have a greater effect for the the positive good of America's future. Yeah. And, And Jeff Bezos probably pays more taxes, obviously, in a dollar amount than most people. But why why should it be anywhere near the same percentage? You know right. what I mean? And then going back into the uh, the uh, universal basic income, you know, the whole idea that we need to cut taxes that uh, affect primarily the super rich because they're the ones who get the economy going by uh, creating a bunch of new jobs. Like that, that is just such bullshit. It has never once worked out like Republicans have said when they cut taxes in ways that pre- uh, predominantly affect the super rich. Whereas when you... Um, when you cut taxes for poor people, you know, they're poor because they, they don't make enough money. They yeah. spend all, all the money, money that they have. So if you start giving poor people an extra $1,000, they're going to spend that entire $1,000. So, I mean, if you actually want to increase 
um, taxes, which, you know, Republicans say when there's more jobs, you know, um, there will be more uh, money spent in the economy and the government will make more money in taxes that way. Uh, and so that's how it pays for themselves. That is not true. When you started from the bottom and basically just give people money, you know, that is what they they'll actually go out and spend it. And that's what increases the uh, the extra taxes from uh, consumer sales that yeah. uh, actually pay for themselves. Well, here's an interesting example, right? Let's say a billionaire saves $50 million in taxes. You know, what might he do with that $50 million? What if he just buys a piece of art to then donate to a, a, a some kind of a museum, uh, a museum, and then just writes off fifty million dollars yeah. more in tax money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so then, not only has he saved fifty million dollars, he saved another fifty million dollars <laughs> the next you know tax yeah. season. Right. Whereas if you give a poor person more money, they're gonna buy probably more nutritious food or more clothes for their kids or something right. like that. You or know? dance lessons like at a Main Street you know dance studio. Yeah. Well, and that's why I think it's so important. Like this UBI might be the only only type of game changer that will help the economics of the rural America, you know, real America or flyover right. country, like the only, like you're never going to have a rural area do better because rich people in New York City and Los Angeles have more money to spend, you know, you know, they save more money in taxes. The only right. way to bring the, the, you know, rural areas back is to put more money into the rural area. Right. And one great way to do that is this UBI. So let's say you have a, t- um, Let's say you have a small town of about 20,000 people. If you give all of them an extra $1,000 a month, well, you know, you've just given the entire community 20,000 times $1,000 per year of extra, you know, economic power in that community. And, and every time uh, there's a minimum wage increase or like a city passes some, you know, like on their own, their own uh, minimum wage increase, um, you know, studies show that literally everybody starts doing better. Uh, it like it scales upwards because, uh, you know. Poor people who start making more money per hour spend that money. And so suddenly all of these businesses, you know, they might have to pay like, let's say, 10 workers an extra $3 an hour or something. But when everybody in the city starts, you know, like let's say Starbucks does the wage increase. If everybody in the city gets a wage increase, you know, Starbucks starts, you know, selling, let's say, you know, 30 more coffees a day. If everyone has more disposable income and people start buying more things that pays for, you know, paying a handful of workers a couple extra dollars per hour. Well, that's like, that's a perfect example to think of it like easy, basically, you know, easy math. Imagine Walmart, let's say Walmart sells 10,000 things a day, right? Right. And they have 40 workers working that day. So if you pay every worker an extra dollar an hour, you know, they're spending 40 extra dollars an hour on their employees, right? But if more people in the community have more money, and instead of saying 10,000 items, let's say they sell 12,000 items, like if every, you know, item was like $3 and the profit margin was like 30 cents, well, 30 cents times a thousand is a lot more than $40 an hour. Per hour, yeah, you know right, what I mean? exactly. So, I mean, it's simple math. If you can just find a way to sell more, you can employ your, your finite amount of workers a tiny bit more right. and drastically yeah. improve their lives. Plus, there's a whole uh, economic incentive to have your employees not hate you and to not give up, you know, because a lot of the <laughs> workers at these shitty big corporations, they don't give a fuck about when people go to Walmart and steal stuff. They, well, they don't get paid. Steal, yeah. yeah, they probably steal shit. Themselves. Well, you know, they probably steal time just walking <laughs> oh, around yeah, and not right. working. You yeah. know, they, they probably steal things right. like office supplies at a minimum. <laughs> you know and, what I mean? Yeah, there's all kinds of, uh, te- you know, you 
see this on social media where like some random employer will give uh, all of their employees a giant bonus because they've made so much money or something. When they start giving it back to their employees that, you know, there's a lot of costs that go into having a uh, shitty, uh, you know, disgruntled workforce that doesn't care. Like when you have people just stop coming to work because they don't care and they just quit willy nilly. Like you have, you lose money having less skilled workers who have been there shorter amounts of time with no loyalty because you have to find new workers then you have to train them you have to cut into your own uh, uh, productivity by having some of your good workers you know take time out of their shift to actually train and explain every aspect of what's going on to the new person well there's a giant cost to this yeah here's an interesting thought uh, kind of example what do you think would happen if a like let's say walmart right like let's say they gave a bonus to their their stock boys who you know unload the trucks and then you know took stuff out of packaging and then you know put it on the you know the showroom floor right if they got a big bonus do you think walmart uh the amount of like broken items in the back might go down yeah right <laughs> you know what i mean maybe yeah. those truck drivers aren't just kicking the packages out of the back yeah, of the truck right like what do you think would ha- maybe they drop fewer things in the back or even on the showroom floor you know right. or stocking supplies like mm-hmm. that would be a huge i mean that right there you know in in lost i guess uh you know, money from broken products might pay for itself, you know, a couple bonuses to a couple stock workers, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, company loyalty and uh, appreciation is really a uh, is a really good use for a company to uh, spend money boosting and looking out for. Yeah. Now, uh, let's switch gears back to uh, the rural, uh, rural conservatives who are uh, negatively impacted uh, by some of these changing ec- uh, economic trends. Uh, we wrote a lovely article a couple years ago where basically the gist was that republic, like conservative uh, rural Republicans have basically been ruining their livelihoods by voting uh, Republican for the last like three or four decades. Do you have any uh, comments you want to throw in about that? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, looking at this article right here, it's uh, just looking at food stamps by state. And uh, it's color-coded. And the big states that obviously stand out for the most amount of food stamps are West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Uh, some of the other ones are like Maine and New Mexico. And Oregon. Uh, and which, Oregon. Which, of course, have big rural uh, yeah. populations. But what you have are, are some very strong you know, pro-Republican states that routinely vote Republican legislatures in and they, you know, they vote for the Republican in presidential elections. So like you have people basically voting to, for people who want to get rid of food stamps entirely, but then almost close to, you know, 15% in a lot of these states or more, uh, Mississippi, 18% of people are on food stamps, Tennessee and Kentucky, 16%, West Virginia, 16%. Um, you know, you have a fifth of the people basically voting to, you know, take away some of their food. You yeah, know what I mean? It's, it's crazy. Right. And it, it reminds me of the, the classic, uh, you know, Republican, you know, claim, get your government hands off my Medicare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just people who don't understand right. the world they live in. So it just shows like how little people actually know what the federal government's doing for them. And more importantly, how it actually helps them. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Right. Yeah. And there's, I mean, just the... The, for the amount of money that almost anybody puts into taxes, 
I mean, the amount of value you get out of being in America with all of the subsidies and different grants and programs and, uh, well, you, you can't know, even quantify it. Right. From roads, yeah. highways, uh, you know, healthcare, um, like what is your exact share of like the 11 aircraft carriers we have? Right. You know? Or the <laughs> seaports that we build that import all of the things you buy the for FDA cheap. And, right. and, and healthy food. Yeah. You know, clean up efforts to clean up like rivers that used to catch on fire so that you can drink water. <laughs> yeah. So you can. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. So you can stay alive. So they clean up the air so you're literally not burned by acidic rain, you know? Well, and then just even the welfare we were just talking about, like, I personally think it's a good thing that people in my community aren't starving to death or that the children aren't undernourished. Right. And, you know, going to grow yeah. up to be, like, you know, mentally, uh, you know, hampered yeah. by a terrible diet and nutrition when they're babies. And, that, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of uh, economic value to being able to walk down the street and not have starving homes homeless people grabbing your ankles because, you know, like everyone's grandparents are literally out in the street dying because they can't afford, you know, elderly health insurance or, you know, their medication. Yeah. I read an interesting idea one time how uh, it's uh, actually good for everybody and even selfish to want other people to be doing better because some of those people are going to go and invent things or maybe even employ you in the future. You know what I mean? Right. So if, if the more people who are doing better or as at least as well as you, like it's good for you. Like what if some poor kid from some poor community ends up, you know, creating the cure for cancer? You know what I mean? How many Einsteins, you know, maybe never got to do anything because, you know, they had shit nutrition when they were a kid and just yeah, had no opportunity. Born into in poverty. Yeah. And couldn't escape it. Yeah. Maybe ended right. up in jail or something. Well, we're coming up on an hour. Uh, I think we uh, have uh, described quite a good uh, number of ideas on uh, the economy. Um, foreign policy. Foreign policy, yeah. I think yeah. we uh, covered quite a bit. National trade, even welfare. Right. Uh, well, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, we're Brain Milk. Once again, I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. And uh, we're associated with the Halfway Post, your number one source uh, in America for halfway real satirical news. So check it out at halfwaypost.com. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.